0: So would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John? We're in John chapter 2. John 2 highlights the very first of Jesus' miracles. Last week we talked about the miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Jesus uh, is using this miracle to symbolically show the replacing of the old system of worship. um, The old ordinances and the old cleansings and the ceremonies with the substance. It all pointed to to Jesus. Um, He was what they all represented. So at the wedding of Cana, the groom ran out of wine for the guests. But what we see is that the bridegroom, Jesus, had actually come to His church. He had arrived. And He provided new wine, good wine. It was much, much better than anything the old system could have provided. The old dispensation of worship with all of the ceremonial law was ending and their Messiah was present. The substance of the entire law was Jesus, Jesus Christ. So in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus communicates a very similar message. John chapter 2, which we'll be reading this morning. John chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 13 through 22. Actually, I'll start in verse 12, 12 to 22. Please stand with me for the reading of this inspired part of Holy Scripture. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up from Jerusalem, went up to Jerusalem, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray that God's add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let us pray. Our father in heaven, you are truly the author of all wisdom, And You have revealed Yourself to us in this Word. This Word is our life. It is our bread. And we pray that Your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes and soften our hearts. That we would receive this Word with joy. That Your Holy Spirit would do His work in and amongst each one of us. Use me to speak Your truth and proclaim your words to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking back as I thought about this particular message of when I first entered the Air Force. And for someone who wanted or aspired to be a pilot, you you show up to your new base, you see jets flying everywhere, And you think the very first day, maybe the second day, that you're going to be one of those people flying around. That's not the case. It it comes as a rude shock that you sit in academics and you sit in simulators for months before you ever fly an aircraft. The simulator, of course, is is there for a particular purpose. The simulator, if you don't know what a simulator is, it's basically an aircraft cockpit cockpit made exactly like a real aircraft, only it's here in a closet. It's in an office. It's on the ground and it doesn't fly at all. All of the switches and the gauges and the dials are exactly correct. It actually operates as it would, as a real aircraft would, and you spend hours and hours in the simulator. You learn what the controls do. You learn how to start the engines. You learn how to how to run all of your emergency procedures. You learn how to boot up all of your navigational aids. You pretend to take off. You pretend to fly around. But you're always on the ground. And you always have some old guy over your shoulder pointing out everything that you do that's wrong, trying to teach you. And of course, the whole purpose, there's one purpose of a simulator and one only to prepare you to fly the jet. And then one day you actually get to walk out to the jet and it feels surreal because you've never known anything except sitting in a simulator. And you get in the aircraft and you fly and it's very similar. And actually it's way, way better than anything you've ever done in a simulator. And the simulator quickly fades into your memory. It's not even close to the real thing. And nobody who has ever flown a real aircraft ever wants to see a simulator again. You have great disdain for the simulator. Talk to Howard. He's been through this process as well. I think he would agree. Well, in a similar way, the Old Testament law was was to prepare the Jews for Jesus. The temple, all of the ceremonies, the Passover, it all served one purpose and one purpose alone prepare the Jews for their Messiah. Our confession in chapter 7 says, the covenant was administered differently in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. In the time of the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, and circumcision, the Passover lamb, all the ceremonial law, and other types and ordinances delivered to to the people of Jesus all for signifying Christ to come. And those things were for them sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, the coming Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. This is called the Old Testament. So the covenant of grace for those in the Old Testament is the same covenant of grace for us in the New Testament, But the ordinances are different. They looked forward to the coming Christ and through the preaching of the word, through fellowship, through the prayers of the saints, the sacraments. We look backward to Christ and his finished work. But we also look forward to his coming again. There's one Christ, the substance and all the old covenant ordinances were ended. So the problem is many of the Jews did not see this. And of course, this is a transitional time when Jesus is walking the earth. He is the transition from the old to the new, from the old waters of purification to the new wine in Jesus Christ. And even after his death and resurrection and ascension, many Jews still did not see it. Many still preferred the old simulator than actually flying the aircraft. So one of John's goals in this early chapter is to showcase the fulfillment of the Jewish law in Christ. Indeed, this time focused on the temple. This is something Jesus demonstrated and taught. and It was deeply important to John as well. And the account of the cleansing of the temple was part of that message. He basically says, I am the place of worship. I am the temple. I am where you come to meet God. So we're going to talk about the cleansing of the temple. There's two points I want to make. The authority and zeal of Jesus is the first thing we'll see. And secondly, we'll see that Jesus is the temple. He's replacing his father's house. So let's dive into verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. This seems to be his new home. Um, Not that he ever has a place really that he stays, but for three and a half years, he uses this as a base of operations. His mother and brothers seem to have moved there as well uh, from Nazareth. And his disciples, they stayed there for a few days. So this is, a, this is after the wedding at Cana. They go to Capernaum. In verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was on a mountain. So no matter what direction you came from, you went up to Jerusalem. It's not like saying they went north on the map up to Jerusalem. Like we might say we go up to Detroit and we go down to Florida. It's not like that. It's the mountain. Everyone went up to Jerusalem. So they went up to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Something about the Gospel of John. John keeps very detailed records of all the feasts and the Passovers. Not every one of them, but Passovers in particular. There are at least three Passovers, some would argue four Passovers that John mentions specifically. And this is the first of Jesus' public ministry. The first Passover. So Jesus is going to this Passover not just as a devout Jew, because every Jewish man and his family was to go there one time every year for that Passover feast and the other feasts as well. Jesus had probably been to many Passovers, but this is the first time He's going as Messiah. You might also remember, just by way of note, that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, discuss a cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry. And Paul, excuse me, John describes this cleansing of the temple in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. These are two different events. The, uh, the higher critics of the 19th century tried to, to, to make these one giant event because the the literary um, aspects of the text, uh, they would say it couldn't possibly be two events. There's too many similarities. And there are some similarities, but there are also also some significant differences. And we have no reason, especially John, who seems very intent on things happening in certain days. And in six days, we saw in chapter one and two that he gathered disciples and went to the wedding at Canaan. This is a few days later. So there's no reason to doubt that this is the first of two cleansings of the temple. And also we see another piece of evidence, I think, that's fairly significant, is we see the response of the Jews to the two cleansings. The second cleansing, you remember, happened after the the raising of Lazarus from the dead, after the triumphal entry. Jesus had been ministering for three years, opposing the leaders of the Jews to their faces, And now he cleanses the temple, and it's almost like the straw that broke the camel's back. They were going to kill him. But at this early time in his ministry, he's not as well known. They didn't really understand exactly who he was or what he was claiming about himself. This first cleansing, we see Jews that are perplexed, but there's no overt hostility to kill him him that's detected in this text. So this is the first of two cleansings is the bottom line. The Passover itself occurred on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. This is the full moon at the end of March or the beginning of April and it had been celebrated for 1,400 years with some breaks because of uh, invasions and exiles, etc. But for 1,400 years, this had commemorated the safety of the Jews when they were in Egypt when the destroyer, the destroyer went through Egypt and killed the firstborn son, and firstborn animal in every home, except for those that had the blood over the doorposts. This was the celebration of the protection of Israel and the destruction of their enemies. And the Passover was the feast of the year. You know, in in the Christian church, we probably have have two things that we love to think about and celebrate Christmas, the, the incarnation of, of the Son of God, and in Easter, his resurrection. Although, in many circles, uh, the most popular holiday in America is Halloween, which is coming up. What an what a abhorrence that Easter, <laughs> that the Christian celebrations would be superseded by a celebration of evil. So the Passover was the feast day of the year. It was the day. All the Jews, wherever you were in the world, if you couldn't make the other feasts, you would make the Passover feast. And they came from everywhere in the world to Jerusalem. And it was immediately followed by the feast, the week-long feast of unleavened bread. It's estimated that between one and three million people would enter Jerusalem during the feast of Passover during Jesus' time. Can you imagine three million people packed into this this city on the mountain and trying to get up into the temple to worship? So this is what Jesus is doing as well and His disciples. They're going to the feast. They're going up to Jerusalem. In verse 14, something happens. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. He arrives at the temple. And instead of seeing worship, it's kind of a super Walmart. It's kind of buying and selling left and right in the temple courts. And he'd probably been many times to Passover, but this was the first time. He's coming as the Son of God, as the Messiah of God at the temple rather than hearing the praise of God and the prayers to God. He hears animals. He he hears the tinkling of of money. He hears arguing and, and bartering rather than ministry to the sick and the needy and rather than foreigners coming in to sing the praises of God. He sees the commercialization of worship and the Passover and what seems to be an animal market that is filled the court of the gentiles well there is another side to the story of course the having the cattle and the sheep and the doves and pigeons all up there in the temple mounts was very convenient for the worshipper this is a very a very man-centered wonderful convenient thing to do for the worshipper you see bringing the sheep that you might need from so far away would be difficult So it's helpful to have a place that's very close to the temple where you can actually buy the animals that you need. You can buy the sheep. You can buy the pigeons. You can buy the doves. You can buy the the oxen or the the cattle. And the same is true for the money changers. The the temple uh, priests would only accept a rare and very highly purified silver coin for the temple tax. It's called a Tyrian coin. This Tyrian coinage wasn't found everywhere, so as people would come from all over the Roman Empire, they couldn't pay with their, their money. They had to exchange their money for the Tyrian coin because that's all the temple priests would accept. So it's very helpful to have the money changer right there. You can change your money and take that new coin and, and pay your tax. It's so nice of the priests And considering the number of people coming to the feast, one to three million, and considering the amount of money that's involved, you can imagine, and the number of animals involved, you can imagine the temple courts. The temple courts were filled to the brim with all of this marketing and all of these sales. And this courtyard that this was happening in is almost certainly the temple courtyard of the Gentiles. So what Herod had done, Herod had done something amazing. If if this pulpit is the temple mount, he built his temple on it, but the people were so numerous he had to extend where the Gentiles were. The court of the Gentiles was separate from the, the smaller court of the Jews. The court of the Gentiles was actually two or three times larger than the court of the Jews where the temple was. And there was kind of a wall around it that no Gentile was allowed to enter. So the court of the Gentiles had to be made much bigger. So he basically took the mountain and he extended this mountain by putting supports and he extended the court of the Gentiles much, much bigger. Doubled the size of the court of the Gentiles. Maybe larger. So it was a massive place and you would enter. There were two entrances that would actually come up a ramp through the floor. So the court of the Gentiles was massive. The idea is that it was filled with animals it was filled with people bartering, changing money, doing everything but the intent of that court. And in the second cleansing, Jesus cites Isaiah 56 and the purpose of the court of the Gentiles. Isaiah 56, verse 6, says, The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and doesn't profane it, who holds fast my covenant. These, these foreigners, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus arrives and recognizes immediately that there's no way any prayer could possibly happen in that environment. There's no worshiping of Gentiles with so many animals and and so much money being exchanged and so much business going on. This was meant to be a house of prayer. And Jesus was offended. This was a perversion of the intent of the court, and it was a perversion of worship. And he acts. This is verse 15, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. I would love to have been there to see this. Can you imagine you're there with all this throng of people? Maybe you've just come up out of the ramp and you finally settled your feet down on the court of the Gentiles. You see the temple in front of you. It's amazing. It looks beautiful. And Herod's temple, by all accounts, was beautiful. And you get this feeling of all of God's people coming to worship Yahweh. But you also see all of these animals and everything else. And if you've ever walked into a stadium or out of a stadium, you know, for a sporting event or a concert or something, you know the feeling of what it must be like to be part of this large crowd. You're just like, you're lemmings, you're just behind the person in front of you. You see the door, you know where you're going, but everyone's shuffling at such a pace that you just know eventually you're going to get there, but it's going to take a while. And you finally get there. And then like that, everything stops. Because there's, there's a man, and he's got a whip, and he's throwing over tables, and he's driving the cattle down the ramps and out the doors. He's cleansing the court, the temple courts. The money changers' tables are all overturned. He's telling the sellers of birds to take all the birds away. He was overcome with zeal for his father's house, for worship. And this is why I was reminded of the zeal of Phinehas in Numbers 25. He was the grandson of Aaron the high priest. He saw the people of Israel worshiping the God of Moab. And all the faithful people of Israel were at the the, the tabernacle, and they were crying and weeping and praying, lamenting the great idolatry that was happening. And in the midst of all the crying, one of the people, one of the Israelites, has is finished worshiping Baal and is probably a fertility cult that involved sex, and he's probably taken this woman for whatever reason. He is, now he's bringing her to his own tent in the congregation. The horror of bringing an unclean woman in the congregation in the first place or an unclean person into the midst of the congregation in the first place. Absolutely forbidden. But to do it in conjunction with your worship of a false god. It's horrible. And Phineas saw this. And he went after that man and he pierced them both through the stomach. And rather than rebuking Phineas, God says that Phineas was commended He would have peace on his house. And God had had turned back his wrath from consuming the Israelites. So this preacher's son was offended by the sin, offended by the affront to God, and went after it. He was jealous for his God. The zeal of the Lord Jesus was in Phineas. When I was preparing, I almost said, Jesus had the zeal of Phineas. Of course, that's not right. Phineas had the zeal of Jesus for the worship of God. I want to take a moment and just read a portion. This is a book of God's attributes describing God's zeal, his jealousy for His own name and the worship of His own name by His own people. God, who is an infinite and eternal and immutable spirit, cannot be swayed by passions like ours. Human jealousy is often destructive. There is, however, a righteous jealousy that burns for the glory of God's word and his worship. We see this when Jesus takes a whip and clears the temple. Thus, the words be jealous can also be understood to mean be zealous in a positive sense. God said, I, the Lord God, I'm a jealous God. We can define God's jealousy as His limitless, fervent and zeal to glorify Himself in the lives of His people. God's jealousy is the fervent energy of His holiness. There's three pictures. First, a picture of a husband zealous for the exclusive relationship with his wife. There's a second picture of the fierceness of a warrior rushing into battle. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. God is a divine warrior who clothes Himself in righteousness, salvation, vengeance, and zeal. And the third picture is jealousy like a fire. The fire of love in Song of Solomon 8 or the fire of anger in Deuteronomy 29. The fire of jealousy is God's very being. For the Lord God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. So, the picture of jealousy reveals the infinitely intense energy of God's affection as he dwells with his people. This is the energy that we see in Jesus Christ as well, as the worship of the Holy God was being maligned, was being twisted and warped. You might also wonder why didn't someone just stop him? There's one guy. What, there's 100,000 people, 200,000 people, however many people are up there. There's a whole stadium of people up there. Why didn't someone just stop him? I think the answer is that it's because of his divine authority. Nobody could ever stop Jesus from doing anything that he wanted to do. When you read the Gospels, if you read Jesus walking away or slipping away, You should not read, oh, well, they kind of quartered him. He had to get away. That's not what's happening here. Jesus does everything that he wants to do. He is almighty God. And although he often veiled his glory, it seems to to me that they all caught a glimpse of his divine glory and his wrath in that moment. He's holy and he's a jealous God, jealous for the worship of of his own name and of his father. And this was his father's house. This is the only time, too, that we see in the Scriptures where Jesus actually physically engages His enemies and the enemies of His Father. He physically engages them. Now, of course, we don't do that anymore. We don't physically fight people. We we engage with our our declaration of the Gospel and of truth. But Jesus is taking tables and flipping them over. He's driving animals out and, and destroying the marketplace that was happening. In that place. He had come to make his father known. He said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. He was displaying his own glory in his authority. And notice too that he's he's claiming that this is his father's house. If that's his father's house, then he's saying something about himself, isn't he? He's saying, I'm the son of the father. This is a decree of His divine Sonship, the Son of the Father. He's come to make the Father known and He's acting with complete authority. That's something that you'll see all through the Gospels as well. Jesus doesn't teach the way that other people taught. He taught with authority. Why? Because He is the ultimate authority of all things. He speaks the truth and He speaks with authority. He acts with authority. He didn't make an appointment with the Sanhedrin to get permission to clear the temple. He didn't didn't go and try to find a compromise with anyone there. He did what was right in that moment. He acted with complete authority, and he had real moral authority because he was the Son of God. He's also fulfilling prophecy. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, "...the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple." And the messenger of the covenant, Jesus, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. In verse 17, it says his disciples remembered that was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is quoted from Psalm 69, which is often quoted in the New Testament concerning Christ. Because of the Lord's desire to preserve the pure worship of God like David, He says that zeal for, for His house has consumed me. In Hebrew, it's eaten me up. And His disciples remembered this statement made by David, and they see the parallels between Jesus and the life of David. Jesus faced many enemies, as did David. And Jesus, like David, was committed to the pure worship of His Father and the zeal for God's house and for the worship of His Father consumed Him. And His zeal for His Father was finally made evident on the cross. The obedience, the dedication to the purpose of worship. Well, you know, Jesus is often viewed by those who don't know their Bibles, I think, as just he's just a man of love. He's just a loving guy. He's just this 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 guy you would want to hang out with all the time. He's just this this loving buddy. And certainly Jesus was a loving man and is. But he's also perfectly righteous, holy, and just. And he wouldn't stand idly by in the beginning of his ministry and watch the worship of his father to be desecrated. And this is just a preview, this cleansing of the temple. It's a preview of what will happen in the very end of the age. When he comes back, he's going to make all things new and everything that's unrighteous will be cast out of his presence. We see this all through the book of the Revelation, especially in chapter 21 when it describes the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing impure will ever enter that place. So a couple things by way of application. We should be offended also by false worship. We should also be offended by people and things in our culture that dishonor the holy God. We should be offended by things that dishonor God in our own homes. You should have a zeal for God and take action against the worldliness around you and in your own life. Do you participate in things that are abhorrent to God? Do you put things before your eyes on your phone or your television that you know are absolutely despicable? Do you hear language that would, would absolutely betray the fact that you're, you're a Christian by using the Lord's name in vain and you're just okay with all of these unholy things being before your eyes and your ears? And then you come to worship the next day. Heaven forbid. Do those things and people and organizations that hate God and despise the worship of God have a place in your life? This zeal you have for God should should cause you to desire to cleanse your own temple of all that offends Him. To throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and to run with perseverance the race that's marked out for you. To live for Him. If God is bringing to mind things in your own life right now, just repent. Repent now. And pray to Him. Grieve your unfaithfulness. Yes, this is part of a Christian life. Is God constantly revealing to you your own sin and the worldliness that's crept into your soul. And calling for you to cleanse your temple. So cry out and weep and wail over your unfaithfulness. Your immorality, your acceptance of our culture, our depraved culture, and come out and be separate and be holy and worship our God in spirit and in truth. This is a call for me, it's a call for all of you as well. Second point of application we need to remember that although this church is not a holy place, we don't have holy places, this is the place where we come to worship. This is the place where we come to worship the holy God. We should be careful we don't ever blend worship with worldliness in any way. As the Jews did in the temple. We come to worship a holy God with reverence and in awe. And yes, we come with joy and praise. But we're meeting the almighty God and his spirit is with us and Christ is in our in our midst. All of our lives should be lived this way before the face of God. How much more should we come here with reverence and awe and how we look and act and and talk as befit the children of God. Our God is a God of love and He desires to be with His people. He desires this, this corporate worship, but He's also a mighty, a holy, a jealous God and a consuming fire. So let me close With verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, What are you? The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for these things? And Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. It's interesting, they didn't ask him, What's the theological or biblical reason you can give us for what you've done here? He's changed everything in the temple. Rather, they said, What sign will you show us? They knew he was a prophet. They knew he was doing what prophets do, calling people back to faithfulness. But rather than seeking the biblical answer, they wanted a sign from him. And he said, no. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He's not saying he doesn't have the authority to do what he did. Because he does, he's saying destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. And John is explaining it to us. This is the temple of his body. He's referring to his own death and resurrection. The very presence of God was with them. And they would eventually destroy his temple. And it would eventually be raised up three days later. So in the wedding of Cana, we see the blessing that we have in Christ as he manifests his glory. In the cleansing of the temple, we see the judgment of Christ against the profane that would enter his congregation as well to his own death Jesus points to his own death and his resurrection both events would say that the substance has replaced the types Christ is there he is the true temple and the disciples remembered and believed this is your call today as well to remember the word of god and to believe it there's no more place in Jerusalem to go worship. There's no more temple. There's no more sacrifices. That's all over. It pointed to Jesus. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. And all must come to God, both Jews and Gentiles, through the blood of Jesus, just like you and just like me. And we're called to believe the Scriptures and the Word of Jesus just as the apostles did. So fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. As we turn to the Lord in a time of the Lord's supper and I will say that this this table is for all those who have faith in Christ who are in good standing in an evangelical church You are welcome. We've already mentioned that you should examine yourselves that's from 1 Corinthians 11 examine yourself to make sure that you are ready to partake this. There's no hidden sin, there's no unforgiveness, there's no nothing in your heart that would cause you to not be able to discern the blood and body body of Jesus.